So Money Episode 243, Julie Ann Cairns. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Great to have you here joining us on this Friday. Imagine being a millionaire and then losing most of your wealth in an instant. My guest today stared down, as she says, the barrel of bankruptcy as the head of a financial markets education company during the most recent financial crisis. Her name is Julianne Cairns, and she's here today to share her riches to rags and back to riches story. She has a new book out this month called The Abundance Code, How to Bust the Seven Money Myths for a Rich Life Now. And it's based largely on her own personal experience with the ups and downs and ups and downs of money, as well as the lessons learned from coaching clients herself. Julianne has more than 20 years of experience in analyzing global economic trends and the financial markets. She has a Bachelor of Economics with Honors and Econometrics from the Australian National University. She also has a Master of Economics and Finance. Julie co-founded Trading Pursuits Group, a financial market education company where she currently serves as the managing director. Now in the book, which is really what we talk about on this podcast, I sort of did away with the format of the show. I don't ask, you know, all of the typical questions, but we do get to so many uh, stories that Julie has coming from her childhood and her adult life as she's experienced the volatility that she has with money. And in the book and in our conversation together, Julianne shares some of her financial teachings, which include how to become aware of your subconscious beliefs around money and patterns of self-sabotage. For example, do you think that you need to work hard to make money? Do you think that you can't ever really be wealthy or that money won't make you happy? Well, Julie says these thoughts may actually be limiting you, and she gives us reasons why. She also discusses how to rewrite your beliefs about money that may be keeping you behind. So if you realize, yes, I do have these limiting beliefs about money, the next step that she talks about is how to actually rewrite those beliefs and start to see life through this lens of abundance. And finally, why she says desire plus knowledge does not necessarily equal success. And she speaks from experience about that. Here is the lovely Julie Ann Cairns. Julie Ann Cairns, welcome to So Money. I cannot wait to hear more about your rags to riches story. Welcome to So Money. Thank you, Farnoosh. I'm very, very happy to be here and share some of my story with you today. Well, we want to celebrate this uh, this latest news of yours, which is that your book, The Abundance Code, is out this month. It's out on the 22nd, and it's uh, the subtitle is How to Bust the Seven Money Myths for a Rich Life Now. And the discovery for this book is really a personal journey for you. So let's start with that and tell us what was the impetus for the abundance code. Sure. Um, well, to give you the full impetus, I'd have to go right back to my childhood. But uh, let me just start before I get to that story with uh, experiences I had in my business. 
because um, I'm trained as an economist and a statistician, and I have a business that uh, I run with uh, my business partner, which is teaching people how to trade the financial markets. Uh, so we teach everyday people how they can access hopefully abundance and gain control of their financial lives and access financial freedom through investing and trading the financial markets. Um, and so I've been doing that since 2002, so quite a while now. And through that business, I've interacted with, you know, we have thousands of clients who have done our courses and I've personally coached uh, hundreds of those clients regarding their own wealth journeys. And one thing that I noticed was that, um, you know, early on in, in, my time at this company uh, that we founded together, my job originally was uh, to do customer support work. And so when someone had gone through one of our courses, they would come to me if they had questions about you know, how to implement it, et cetera. And so I was often talking one-on-one -on -one with people about what their specific challenges and frustrations were. And after years of doing this, it kind of began to, the penny began to drop that what was really holding people back when um, many of our clients had success, but some clients just consistently uh, ran into frustrations. And I started to realize that the frustrations for them was actually happening on the level of belief. It wasn't anything to do with the knowledge that we had uh, shared with them, they had the exact same knowledge that many of our other clients who were making it successful, um, making it work for them had, and yet they were stumbling over and over and over again and sabotaging their own success. So that kind of got me thinking. And I started to get interested in the field of subconscious beliefs as a result of that. And then uh, lo and behold, um, you know, I thought I, I didn't really look at myself. <laughs> uh, I was looking at my clients and analyzing their behavior and analyzing their belief blockages and stuff like that. And lo and behold, uh, I had a personal financial crisis, which happened um, after the, the um, global financial crisis in 2008. Our company ran into problems. Uh, mainly because we had some debt that uh, we needed to be able to refinance and there was no credit available at that time. No banks were lending. And so we had all this debt that we couldn't get refinanced and we didn't really know what we were going to do. And that triggered an epiphany for me. And it reminded me of a situation from my childhood. So... Uh, my childhood wealth story is that uh, I grew up in a very prosperous household. My my father was a very successful surgeon, and um, by about the age of of forty, he had achieved uh, a huge level of success and and pretty much achieved all of his dreams. And we were living in the dream house that my parents had built for themselves, and they had. Um, 
art and airplanes. They were both uh, hobby pilots and they bought themselves a couple of airplanes and sent my, my older brother off to a very exclusive private boarding school. And uh, my sister and I were, my sister had a pony and, you know, we were living this very prosperous life. We all were. And then uh, I think they actually ran into a belief hurdle themselves. Um, that this is you know, my projection about the situation, I suppose, my interpretation about the situation. But I believe that they ran into a belief hurdle about uh, that money won't make you happy. And once they had achieved all of their dreams, um, I think they, they had a little bit of a crisis around that as, as in when you achieve everything that you set out for in life and you're still not happy, that can sometimes cause a little bit of a crisis. So they started to drink quite a bit. And within a few years, their drinking just escalated and they had pretty much um, uh, frittered away or, or uh, destroyed all of their wealth. And so by the time I was 11, my parents broke up and it, Seemingly, all of the money was was gone because they had made. What kind of what? what how would they do with the money? I mean, the drinking is is, is one issue, <laughs> I, but were they gambling? Drinking is they- one issue. Look, Furnish. I wish I knew. Um, I mean, I've asked my parents about this, and I've heard all kinds of conflicting stories, and nothing really seems to stack up or make sense. So, to be honest, I I, I don't actually know what happened to all of the money, but I can just tell you that suddenly there wasn't any. Wow. And in a short period of time, you were only 11 when this happened. Right. And so uh, my parents broke up at that time and I went to live with my mother um, and she ended up remarrying. And, uh, you know, my experience of living with my mother from the age of, of 11 to 16, when I finally moved to Australia, uh, we really didn't have very much money to speak of at all. And honestly, I don't know how my mother made ends meet. Um, she, uh, she got remarried. She had another baby. Uh, I was living with her. My older brother was living with her. And I, I, so she was the only one working in the household and there were five mouths to feed. And I, I really don't know how she managed, but, um, so there, there wasn't much money to go around. So I, I had these two very different experiences growing up as a, as a child of a lot of prosperity and then suddenly none. And out of that experience, I decided <laughs> at about the age of 15 that I had experienced both sides and I kind of thought that having money was, was the better of the two <laughs> options. And so I... I got this really burning desire that I wanted to create wealth in my life. And I decided that uh, what I needed in order to create that wealth was knowledge. So um, I hadn't really been overly interested in school. I'd been a pretty good student up to that point, but I hadn't been super motivated. But suddenly I got motivation and I started to study really hard. And that kind of prompted me to... Um, moving to Australia because I, I felt that I could get a better education in Australia. Australia had, at that time, free university education, so that was a big draw card. And where were you and, raised? Where were you raised? Well, I was raised in Canada, mm. but my parents were actually Australian. So my 
father had moved back to Australia after my parents divorced. So when I was 16, I went to live with him in Australia, which is where I live now. I live in Sydney. Uh, so, yeah, I had this burning desire and I set out to get the knowledge that I decided I needed in order to be successful. And I spent uh, many years at university studying finance. Uh, I ended up going to Japan and getting um, a master's degree in international finance. And, and if I may interrupt uh, you just for one second, sure. all of this sounds perfectly sensible to me. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, like I totally thought I was on the right track. I think you, yeah, exactly. Right. And, and maybe even now you look back and you thought that wasn't a complete waste of my time. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm not saying it was a, a waste of time at all. But what I thought, what I thought was that desire and knowledge was all I needed for success. And what I discovered was, and I didn't discover this until I had that crisis in after the global financial crisis and had a crisis in my own finances and I came close to losing everything. And at that moment, I, I had this thought and it was, wow, that's, this is interesting that this is happening because I was about 40 at the time that that happened. And that was the same age that my parents were when they lost everything. And I had this little thought and it was, huh, this is just like what happened in my childhood. I wonder if this is a repeat of what happened in my childhood. I wonder if this is what I believe is normal. And that little thought sort of sent me on a track where, where I started to investigate what it was that I believed about money. And what I discovered was that for me anyway, um, knowledge was not enough. Desire was not enough. They were like two legs of a stool. And I kept trying to sit on that stool with only two legs and I kept falling off of that stool. Mm -hmm. I, I actually had quite a roller coaster ride with wealth up until this point, but this was, this was like a, a super crisis. Uh, and I was about to lose everything. And I kind of realized, okay, there's a, there's a missing leg to my stool and it's the leg of a supportive set of beliefs that will allow me to succeed. That is consistent with, um, me achieving success. If I don't really believe that I can achieve the success that I, that I want, and that I should know how to get because I have the know-how, uh, if I don't really believe I can have it, then I just keep sabotaging my, uh, my outcome. So just to take a second here, I want to analyze what your previous belief about money actually was based on your experience growing up as a kid. Was it that money comes and goes or, and, or that money is not something that is meant to be necessarily kept or that you're not worthy of it for some reason, because you saw yeah. how in your family, it just was this uh, fly by night situation. So in your own words, what was it that um, was keeping you behind Sure. Well, when I dug down, I actually uh, came across what I call the seven money myths. And these were seven beliefs that um, 
that not only I had, but when I went back and looked at the experiences of the clients that I had coached and people around me in my life, I, I ended up talking to a lot of people and interviewing them about, about their beliefs. I discovered this set of, um, they're kind of like hurdles, I suppose, uh, that stand between us and our achievement of the life of freedom, choice, and abundance um, that I believe now we all deserve. And the first, the first hurdle, the first money myth is the belief in scarcity. So this is just the fundamental belief that there is not enough. Um, and sayings like money's hard to make and um, money doesn't grow on trees and waste not, want not. These are all sayings that speak to that belief. The second barrier, once once you sort of get through the scarcity belief and loosen it up and start start to entertain the idea that there could be abundance, there could be enough, I could get to a place of enoughness in my life. Then we we start contemplating, well, how, how? And we come up against the second barrier, which is the belief that we have to exchange our time for money. That time money exchange is, is you know, the go-to method of, of bringing abundance into our lives. And it's not that it's a, a bad method. It's just a very limited method. So a lot of these beliefs are, they're not necessarily bad beliefs. They're just very limiting. Um, and if you want true abundance, you really got to get the limits, um, release the limits so that you can really achieve abundance. So if you break through the, the time is money constraint, the next go-to for people is, well, how can, how can I make my time worth more? Well, one way is that an hour is worth more. So my work is worth more. And so this is where a lot of people go to the idea that, well, if I get educated or I get more qualifications or I, um, you know, climb up the ladder, then my hour is going to be worth more. Um, and that's not, not a bad method either, but it's still limiting. Uh, because the, the best way really to increase your wealth is to leverage your time and to leverage your assets and invest so that your money can make money for you. Um, but when you start to do that, you, a lot of people hit the fourth money myth which is the belief that it takes money to make money. So if you think that, and um, saying that speaks to this, for example, is uh, the rich get richer while right. the poor get poor, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if, if you feel like you're locked out of true wealth and true, um, true abundance uh, because you don't have enough money to start with, that can be a very disempowering belief for people. Can we go back to the third myth for one second? Sure. Because I thought that that would be uh, something that my listeners would maybe go, wait a minute, uh, best way to leverage your, um, best way to uh, make money is to leverage your time, you said, um, or to create this rather life of, you know, ab abundance and choice and freedom. But right. for some people, incre you know, elevating their education, going back to school is necessary. And so, uh, are there exceptions? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, I abs in all of these stages, I'm not saying that they are bad, bad beliefs. Okay. So it's not that the belief is wrong. It's just that the belief has limitations and when you want to really grow your wealth beyond 
your exchange of time, um, then you have to start leveraging yourself somehow. And you probably know this, um, Furnish. Um, I believe you you set this podcast up so that you could still have impact and uh, speak to people about money while raising your family. Is that right? That you said it better than I could. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good. So so you're leveraging yourself. You're leveraging your time, and uh, through this podcast, you're speaking to lots and lots of people all at once. And similarly with your wealth journey, if you really want to uh, open the floodgates of abundance coming into your life, you have to figure out ways to leverage your time or to leverage your assets. And there's lots of ways you can do that. I mean, you can leverage your time by, for example, having um, employees or starting your own venture and having people work for you so that it's not just your own hours that are contributing to your wealth, it's other people's hours as well. Or you can invest your money and compound your returns. So that's where you you know, you put money into something that, that creates a positive return. And instead of taking the return out, you just reinvest and the investment starts to snowball. And, uh, you know, Einstein once called that, uh, compounding returns, you know, the, the The eighth eighth wonder of the world, world, right? Yes. Because although in the beginning it takes a little while, it's not that perceptible, you know, you, you start getting your money working for you. And in the beginning, the growth uh, doesn't seem that huge. But when it compounds, you get into the exponential growth um, curve. And as you go along, it just starts to increase and increase and the curve kind of goes vertical. Um, and when you get to that part, then, you're, then your wealth really starts to snowball. And the key to it is to begin Right. Just start. Um, As I always say to people, yeah, just start. You don't have to feel like you have to be wealthy to start. Like you say, uh, it doesn't take money to make money, which is your fourth myth. What's your fifth, sixth, and seventh? Um, Just before we move on to the fifth, there's a a great saying that I heard once, which is that you don't have to um, be wealthy to be an investor, but you do have to be an investor to be wealthy. I like that too. I'm going to write that down. Uh, okay, so the fifth myth. So say you do start uh, leveraging your time and leveraging your assets. Then what's going to happen is that uh, money will begin to flow into your life quite easily without you having to exchange your time for it. And then at that point, you can hit the fifth barrier, which is the belief that money is the easy come, easy go. That money that flows into your life easily must leave your life just as easily. And this is one of the beliefs that I had in place. And I suppose through my personal journey and through, you know, just doggedness of like uh, trial and error and trying to get as much knowledge as I could, I did manage to kind of struggle my way through the first four myths. But when I got to the point where I did have money flowing into my life quite quickly and easily, um, this myth tripped me up. And this caused me to do things, make bad choices with my investments, uh, take too much risk, um, and other, other behaviors that caused the money to just flow out of my life very quickly. 
Uh, so it was very essential for me to come to grips with that one. Yeah, I would say that and was I probably, also had, it hit home. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I also had the myth in place, and this was this came from my childhood experience that money won't make you happy. I had seen with my parents that you know they got to this position of of prosperity. And then they started to drink. And I had equated those two things in my mind, that they must have started drinking because they had money, because money doesn't make you happy. In fact, I decided money made you unhappy. Did you ever figure out what was missing in your parents' lives? Well, I I kind of feel, you know, that's probably their story to tell, and I don't want to put words in their mouths. Um, but. I really do suspect that it was a case of, well, and this is, this comes back to this belief that money, money won't make you happy, but money doesn't necessarily make you unhappy. Um, and money doesn't have to uh, be a negative influence in your life. You can, it can be a very positive influence and it can facilitate your happiness. But I think in my parents' case, they expected money to be the answer to everything. And when they got to that level of prosperity and it wasn't the answer to everything, they really didn't know where that answer was. Uh, and so I think that that caused a bit of an emotional crisis. Mm. Uh-oh, that, that was not the panacea that we thought it was going to be. Right. And now we don't know how to fix whatever the void is that, you know, we still feel like we've got inside. And I think that's important for people to know that, you know, money isn't going to heal your childhood wounds necessarily. You, you've got to do the healing of whatever stuff and baggage you're, you're holding yourself. Money isn't going to necessarily do that for you. However, money can give you the space and the means by which to address those things um, while it's not having to deal with all the other stresses and financial strains in life. That makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, and that sort of leads on to the seventh money myth, which is kind of the final, the ultimate. You know, if you if you manage to break through all the other barriers and you decide that you know um, money can make you happy, it does. You can have money flow into your life easily. It can stay. It can grow. Uh, then the seventh money myth is this idea that well, if you if you become truly wealthy, that that will corrupt you somehow. And um, money is the root of all evil is a saying that speaks to that. Um, there's some very Christian sayings like, uh, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Uh, so there's some very loaded Yikes. statements, ideas that, that come from uh, some religious traditions around around money. Uh but also, um, you might be familiar with the the Charles Dickens story, um, A Christmas Carol with the character Ebenezer Scrooge. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's a bit of an archetype of, you know, the, the miser. The villain. The, yeah, the yeah, villains the are always rich. the wealthy oil tycoons. I've seen right. the latest Muppets movie as well. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, so there is quite a pervasive archetype of the the person whose soul has been corrupted by money. And you know, if you if you want to uh if your definition of a life well lived is is to be a good person and to potentially get into heaven if that's what you believe in and you think that money is going to prevent you from from achieving that, then you're not going to let it enter your life. Uh, it's just going to be a complete deal breaker, right? Right. So that's a very important one to be aware of. Um, and, you know, it's a very powerful conditioning that especially people who have been re- raised in religious households can have. Uh so let's say that you are listening to this show and you identify with a couple of these myths, that these are some of the uh, beliefs that you have been te- maybe subconsciously telling yourself all these years. How do you begin to rewrite your beliefs about money? Um, what's what, the first step? Well, there's really three steps. Um, the first step is to identify the limiting beliefs. And a key symptom here for people is the presence of frustration. Uh, when you have frustration in your life around something, usually that's pointing to a limiting belief that's holding you back. And the frustration is coming from you're pushing against that limitation and you want to get through it, but you just can't because your belief is not allowing you to. Uh, so in that sense, frustration is a really wonderful um, indicator. And whenever there's frustration in your life, it's, it's pointing to something that's a very valuable lesson. So I always see it as kind of a good thing. Uh, I, I guess I've changed my mentality around frustration in that sense. So the first step is identify the limiting belief, see where you're frustrated and look under the hood a little bit and go, well, what might be causing that frustration? What do I believe that's, that's holding me back here? And another thing you can do for this step of identifying the beliefs is listen to yourself. What do you say about money? What are the things that come out of your mouth about money? Do you say things like, you know, money in, money out? Um, do you say things like one step forward, two steps back? Do you say you have to work hard for your money? Are those things that come out of your mouth? And are those things that, you know, when you hear them, when you hear other people say them, that you find yourself nodding your head and agreeing. Uh, so that's step one, notice. Step two is, is once you notice the belief, start to weaken it. Start to insert doubt by saying, well, to yourself, is that really true? Um, is it true all the time? Is it true in every circumstance? Is it true for everyone? And then you can get to the place where you can start to ask the question, well, does it have to be true for me? And when you can start to really doubt whether it needs to be true for you, uh, then you've achieved the second step. And the third step is to then overwrite the belief. Once you've identified it, switch it out with a new belief. And one switch out might be, for example, um, say you believe you've identified that you believe money is hard to make. You might switch that out with a new belief that says money flows to me abundantly. Or another example might be you believe money is easy come, easy go. 
And you might switch that out. I like to switch that one out with money is easy come, easy grow. (laughs) So it can come into my life easily and it can grow and grow. And that kind of, to me, implies I don't have to hoard it. I get to spend it, but it's still, you know, it grows in my life. Um, And for example, money is the root of all evil. If you believe that one, then you can switch that out with um, money can help me have a positive impact for myself, for others, and for the world. Um, because really, at the heart of that belief, we, we're worried that we're not going to do good with the money. You know, Julie, so, yeah, this reminds me so much of um, some of Tony Robbins' teachings, which is that, you know, in order to have a breakthrough, and in this case, a financial breakthrough in your life, you need to obviously change your your state, your story, and then your strategy. And we've talked a lot already about the story or the beliefs that we, that we inhibit. Um, but what about strategy? Does your book talk a a little bit about, um, what you can physically do next to get yourself healthier, uh, from a financial standpoint? I mean, so obviously the mind is, you know, the the most powerful element in, in this journey, uh, getting that in, in, in the right space. But yeah. then you have to also do the do the do the good work <laughs> that's involved. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Um, you know, there's no question that, as I said before, that you know you need you need the elements of desire, you need the element of of knowledge, you need to want abundance, and you need to have some know how about how to get it. Um, and I guess what my book is really about is saying, okay, that's great, but if you don't have that element of belief in place, then you've got that two-legged stool and you're going to fall over every time. So what I mainly talk about in the book is how do you overwrite the belief? Um, And I give uh, seven very quite easy techniques that that anybody can do really to overwrite a belief. Um, And it's not as hard as people think. A lot of people think that that change is hard Um, But it's only hard if you try to change what you do without first changing what you believe. And that's, I think, a very important point because it's very easy. A lot of people want to jump to that do thing, that do stage. What do I do? Um, Which is the strategy stuff that you're talking about. And I think there's lots of great books on strategy. And in fact, my business... Uh, teaching people how to trade the financial markets is all about strategy. And I guess where I got to with my book was, was the reason I wanted to write the book was because I realized that it didn't matter how much strategy we taught people or how good the strategies were or how robust and how much we, we managed risk and all of that stuff. None of that mattered when a person didn't have the right belief framework in place they still would sabotage themselves no matter how good their knowledge was. And so with this book, I'm not really going hugely into strategy. I do touch on things like, you know, um, I do talk about it in the book. I do talk about how it's important to have income strategies. It's important to have capital gain strategies. And, you know, it's good to have a mix of both of them. I talk about compounding your returns I do go through some investment basics, but with the book, I really didn't want to focus on strategies as much as I wanted to get the message across that this belief piece is really, really critical. 
We are almost wrapped here, Julie. I didn't really follow the traditional standard format for the show because I really wanted to get to the specifics of your book because I think it's so important. And thank you for taking the time to go through all of the steps with us. And before you go, though, I have to ask you, if I may, because you have such an extensive background in analyzing the markets and analyzing the economy, lots of people are writing into me right now and a little concerned about what they're hearing as far as corrections down the line, um, maybe even another recession. We know interest rates are going to have to go up at some point and perhaps soon. What's your, uh, if you had a crystal ball, what would you see happening <laughs> in the global markets in the next year? And what would be your advice for the average investor who is really in it for the long haul? We're not talking day traders or active investors. What would be your advice to the average person about how to navigate the uh, expectations in the marketplace in the near future? Uh, okay. Well, Basically, I think, you know, when you look at what's going on in the global markets, it's always good to try and pick what are, what are the really big themes? Because it's it's very hard to pick um, timing. Uh, it's hard to pick the top of the market. It's hard to pick the bottom of the market. But if you pick a, a big theme that you go, it think is going to play out for many years to come, then that's always a winner um, for your investment portfolio if you just sort of get on it early and ride it for a nice long time. And in terms of a big theme like that, uh, the one that stands out for me right now is, as you said, in the U.S., interest rates are probably going to start to rise. And that has lots of implications for the global economy and most specifically for the U.S. dollar. Uh, so I'd, I'd say big theme, uh, when U.S. interest rates really do start to rise, uh, that's going to cause an inflow into the U.S. dollar because it's already seen as a, a little bit of a safe haven. Um, and really what's been keeping people out of the U.S. dollar is the fact that there's been no return. There's been no yield to speak of uh, due to the interest rates being so low. So once that reverses, that will be a big trend change. So then um, the dollar will strengthen. Yes, I would expect. Uh, that's generally what happens when when interest rates starts to go up. It's a positive for the dollar. Now, there's all kinds of other things that could impact the dollar in the short to medium term. But as a long-term trend, if we're on a rising interest rate trend for um, as a multi-year sort of thing, then that's going to be a positive for the currency. Do you see the markets retro, uh, regressing in in the, like before the end of the year or in the next uh, six months? Um, I probably wouldn't make a, a big call on it. You know, the markets have been quite volatile. And one of the things that, that we teach people in our courses is how to actually take advantage of volatility as opposed to trying to always pick direction. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. And it's not one that we typically <laughs> that have on this show. It's not one right. that I entertain really, because <laughs> honestly, you know, it's anyone's guess <laughs> with all due respect, you know, it's, it's really, um, difficult to, right. You would say it's difficult to really nail it on the head some off every single time. Right. D picking direction, you know, as I said, unless you're looking at big long-term trends, uh, trying to pick direction is a very tricky game. 
And I tend to prefer to look at, well, is it is it volatile right now and how can I take advantage of that volatility? And there are ways to do that, but that's quite a technical conversation <laughs> as to how you do that. Yeah. 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 Well, Julie, Anne, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a really enriching conversation. I've taken copious notes and I know my guests will probably, my, sorry, my, my listeners will be playing replay on this um, or they can grab the transcript online. And I want to just mention that you have some wonderful videos for us on your website, which is the abundancecodebook.com. They're free videos. Yes. If, if people want supplemental content around this, go check that out. Yes, that would be great. All right, Julie, congratulations on the abundance code. There's also a documentary? I just saw this. Yeah. Oh, tell yeah. me about that. Okay. Well, that's that's got a release date scheduled of March next year. Okay. And so what the documentary is, is I really wanted to go around and interview thought leaders on their thoughts about abundance and what is abundance. Um, and so the Abundance Code documentary really gets more into um, what are the key themes that a person uh, brings into their life that then triggers a state of abundance and an experience of abundance. And I run, I've gone around and interviewed a lot of people about that. So I'm very excited about that project. I am too. I can't wait to watch that. Thank you so much for all the, the various platforms you're putting this important message out. And um, we hope that uh, we know, I mean, I just know it's going to be really successful. So congratulations and wishing you continued success, Julianne. Thank you. Um, and I just like to maybe just leave with one quick final thought, which is this idea uh, that beliefs are like the roots of your tree of abundance and you were talking about knowledge and strategy and the things that you do they're more like the leaves uh, on your tree and when you want a tree to grow you don't water the leaves you water the roots the leaves are really important to the uh, um, to the fundamental action of the tree for for it to uh, take advantage of its environment right and photosynthesize so leaves are really important but when you want to foster the growth of a tree you you water the roots and that's what dealing with your beliefs is like when you deal with your beliefs and you sort them out and you make sure they're in line with what you want to achieve in life then your tree can really suck up uh, the water and grow i love that analogy thank you that's really a great way to end the the podcast Thank you again, Julianne. Thank you very much. That is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Julianne, visit her website. It's theabundancecodebook.com. We have all this information at somoneypodcast.com where you can also find the transcript and comments from this episode and all episodes. And speaking of comments, Julianne has generously offered to go into our comment section for this particular episode at somoneypodcast.com and uh, answer any of the questions that you might have for her. So in the next day or two, if you have got a question for Julianne, go on there. She'll be keeping her eye out for 
listeners and their questions. So do take advantage of that. And I want to hear from you while you're at somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh and submit your question about money or work or life or guests. And there's a really good chance that I will answer it in an upcoming Ask Farnoosh episode of So Money. Thanks so much to my guest, Julianne Cairns, for joining us and for all of you for taking time to tune in to So Money. I really appreciate it. And I hope your day is so money. So money.